Raiders is a team that we don't care for. Something, something, With Lord Lattimore Volk, Jess Place, and Tim Lynch. Yes, my master. Get involved in the conversation at milehighreport.com. You are listening to Something Something Broncos. I am Jess Place, joined by Lori Lattimore-Volkman. Lori and I had the tremendous fortune to sit down with Abner Haynes, a former Denver Bronco from the 1960s, civil rights leader uh, during the 1965 American Football League boycott in New Orleans um, that changed many lives. An NFL, uh, AFL legend. And so without further ado, uh, here is our interview with Abner Haynes. By 1965, America and the American Football League had come a long way. But there was still a long way to go. My general manager, Mr. Stedman, telling me, well, Abner, we don't condone what you did in New Orleans, and we think you led them. They wrote me a letter, two-page letter, explaining to me how a football player's role is not to help his people. All I'm supposed to do is to play football and keep my mouth shut. Within two days, two or three days, I was traded to Denver. You'd be surprised how many were out of the game within a year or two. I know Cookie Gilchrist's career went down the drain after that. But I'm more concerned with being a good dad. And my son's not here in 20 and 30 years later, how I chickened out and didn't have no backbone. It was time for some men to stand up and be counted. I think that's what we did. Mr. Haynes, it is wonderful to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure's mine. Haynes, if you can see my background, but I have a picture of you up there from your playing days. Well. Look at that young guy. (laughs) Sometimes I don't see well, but I know you're taking care of me. (laughs) Look like my senior year in college. Oh, all right. (laughs) Let me ask you before we really get started, what was it that you liked to play football? That's an interesting story because when people asked it, it immediately brings in my family. All right. At the time that you're talking about, I was born in the year 1937, and my brother was a senior quarterback at View College, a black college in Texas. Uh, Samuel Haynes was the starting quarterback that year, and they played in the Cotton Bowl, which was right down the street from my house. Right. And we got a, got a chance to... Uh, go to the fair and go to the game. And I got a chance to see my brother play. So that was my experience of starting at football. And we really enjoyed the game. It, it, it was a uh, color folks day. The day they played the game, they, they used to have at the fair in Dallas, uh, Negro day. And we could only go one day out of the fair. 
that day, Prairie View played Wiley College, another black college, and we all went to the game. I had never seen that many black folks in my life. So it was an interesting experience, and uh, really football caught my eye. How old were you when you first started playing? Uh, I must have been 15. Okay. They'd make me play in the front yard, on the side of the yard. I had four brothers and two sisters, and they all played football. <laughs> two girls, sisters. I love yeah, it. The girls, too. The girls could catch as good as the boys. <laughs> <laughs> so they were tough, and they would run, and we could hit them, and they wouldn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you'd settle all family disputes? You'd just go play some football in the backyard? Well, at the time, it was so little for us to do till you were out looking, trying to find the way out of the neighborhood, the way out of the junior high, keep them getting killed or getting shot by the police and, or something else. You, you, you knew you was in Dutch and you were just trying to do something to, to get away. In my family, after you got a certain age, you would get sent to Colorado to go to school. My brother went to the University of Denver while my sister was in Prairie View. And uh, I ended up uh, going to North Texas, but my dilemma was, was uh, Colorado and Prairie View at the time. North Texas in Denton? Yes. Yeah. I was born in Denton, Texas, oh. and that's about 30 miles north of Dallas. It was interesting. Uh, they were segregated, and uh, when my parents talked to me about integrating a college and going to school somewhere, Denton was the, the, obviously the one they had in mind because they would let me stay in Denton. Right. Right. And so my family took me down to talk to the coach, and he didn't seem reluctant to have. He wasn't excited, <laughs> but he said he would let me try out. Uh, my freshman year was 1956. I walked to class, and we didn't have buses, and I, I would walk from the black part of town through town and then out to the school where, where the school was. And I had so many little partners along the way till people didn't even notice us after a while. I used to look for trouble and wonder where it was and who was going to mail me, but nobody never said nothing <laughs> on the way. The reason he's walking across town is Black people were not allowed to live on University of North Texas's campus. He couldn't eat on the campus. They do the two-a-day practices, and he'd have to walk back to the black part of Denton. And what got interesting uh, was a couple of my white teammates who could eat in the cafeteria, but I couldn't, they start slipping me food. <laughs> and yeah, that caught my attention. It, uh, uh, one white guy named Vernon Cole, I never will forget him, he was a quarterback from Poly Point, Texas. Ah. 
Yeah, still ain't got, you know, probably 10,000 people in it. <laughs> Sneak me out burgers. And, and uh, they would bring them to me on the side of the building. And I thought that was just marvelous. And so I, <laughs> I, I quit going back home to eat. And uh, my teammates started to take care of me. Yeah. Did you find that among your teammates, the white teammates in particular, that they weren't racist against black people? Or were they still, but they were better at <laughs> being friendly? and dealing with it. I've looked at it through the years. It was according to where they were from. Vernon and them, they were from very small towns. My teammates that year, we went undefeated. We really hung together. We played in some college towns where they didn't want me there, but my teammates were the ones that would look out for me and make sure I could get on the bus. How many black players were on the North Texas team? At the time, we had two. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just you and and one other, huh? Yeah, a uh, wide receiver named Leon King. That integrated the yeah. state of Texas. And the side, there was no black players at any college in Texas. In the South? In the South. He was the first one. Wow. One of the, the things that people asked me about was how I functioned in Denton, but the true test for me was going away from Denton and playing a team. They really didn't like that. What kinds of things would you experience when you went on the road? Verbal abuse. I'd hear people hollering at me from the stands. That wouldn't do nothing but fire me up. They didn't know that. <laughs> Little did they know they were helping you out. Well, they shot at me a couple of places at Vero College. Oklahoma yeah. State. And uh, we played at some, some schools you would recognize today. They would cut the lights off at the night game at Oklahoma State. They attacked the bus that the players were going to be on. Right. And his coach, Ken Bonson, took dad and drove him back to Denton in his own car while the mob thought he was on the bus and they were busy attacking the bus. Oh my goodness. Terrifying. The name of the football field in North Texas now is Ken Bonson Stadium. He was quite a guy. I was lucky because I, I had some people looking out for me. The president of the university would slip and watch practice to see if I was all right. <laughs> You said earlier he wasn't particularly excited to have you, but he was okay with it. Did that change over the course of your time in Denton? The coach come around to being excited to have you? Uh, we became uh, great friends. He and, and uh, his wife, Mary McCain, was like a mom to me. She treated me like I was her son. He was the backfield coach. He would take care of me, give me information. Like if there was a hotel, didn't want me to stay, like up in uh, Utah and places we played up there. And uh, he was the one to come and let me know, put me in the right situation where uh, I wouldn't get hurt. A hell of a, an emotional thing because while I was having problems, I was developing friends. You know, 17 or 18 then, and I'm watching everything going along. But I was a pretty good athlete. I ran track and football. 
after school every day, all the kids was out on the field, the pep squad and the, the team. And, and that's where we would get most of our things done of association. Right. Yeah, at practice and just running around, talking to each other and getting to know each other. Do you feel like that's actually one of the better things about sports is that when you have to kind of work together as teammates, it helps develop a, a greater understanding and maybe even get past a lot of the, the barriers that we grow up with. Like their ability to overcome the ignorance. Football is a funny thing. Uh, the key to it is that you must come together and trust each other and depend on each other to throw your block, to make you tackle, right. to do whatever it is that they think you're going to do. And I noticed that that was a very important key at the time, uh, me being good and me trusting in my white teammates who were supposed to make the block or make the tackle, me believing in them, they delivered, that developed a relationship. Right. So I took that on to professional football. In 1960, actually I was drafted by Oakland in the fifth round. And before I got to Oakland was on the phone, they told me I had been traded to Dallas to Mr. <laughs> Lamar Hunt. I thought that was unusual because uh, most of the guys that were from Dallas that were good at something, seemed like the white community would really get them out of the way so they wouldn't use them to sell to the rest of us. <laughs> When uh, the brothers found out I was on the team, man, they just showed up uh, like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Tough then when with the Dallas Cowboys coming into existence at the same time um, and then going completely winless and then it being the Dallas Texans that were the, the team to, to move to Kansas City? We played in Dallas two years. Mr. Hunt came to me one day and said that the team was really popular and they were interested in us uh, playing in Kansas City. And so it wasn't long before he finally told us we were, he was moving the team to Kansas City and I was going to have to find another place to stay. That was in 62. Had you been to Kansas City before that? I went to Kansas City one time to church. Yeah, the Church of God in Christ. My dad was a bishop. I remember going to Gates Barbecue and getting <laughs> some barbecue. And... This is not an important question, but Kansas City likes to brag about its barbecue, but so does Texas. So who's got better barbecue, Texas or Kansas City? You're not going to get me in that. <laughs> <laughs> we can That's talk about race, right but we can't talk about barbecue, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me. You think I'm that dumb? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The good barbecue in Kansas City is at 31st in Indiana. All right. At a place called OG's. That's where we used to go before the game. In Dallas, you can find barbecue all over. West Dallas, all black communities. Uh, my dad was, as I said, a bishop of church. So we went to church a lot. And after church, we'd go and eat. And uh, it was great, man, because all of it was good. 
Sunday <laughs> tradition. Did you notice some of the same issues playing in professional football as you had in college football with the acceptance? Um, was it was it still the same on the team, but difficult with fans, or was it different? No, it was definitely different. As players, uh, the fans would notice us, and we had bonds of, of guys that you got along with every day. Right. And, and uh, we'd pull for each other during the game and at halftime and after the game. And the fans would find out about who you liked and who was your partner. The sports writers was writing about then. And the mystery of how y'all was getting along and having success. And so were the fans better toward uh, the teams? Absolutely. It was no comparison. Okay. In college, it was like they thought they owned you. Where in pro ball, it wasn't that kind of deal. You you know, we play in New York, Denver, and Miami. We still had fans. We didn't know these people, and we didn't know why they was hollering for us. <laughs> but we kind of didn't care. We were right. just glad to have them. Six months after the Civil Rights Act was signed, the AFL All-Star Game was scheduled for New Orleans, a city without a professional sports team. Black players soon discovered that New Orleans' red carpet was for whites only. Do you remember what kind of started the whole conversation of maybe doing a boycott? How did it evolve over the, the days that you were there? No, it kind of started uh, in Dallas. And me and my partner, Clem Daniels, who was a running back for the Oakland Raiders at the time, we were trying to go to the All-Star game together. Right. And he was another running back from Prairie View. We went to the airport and got on the plane, and things were pretty quiet until we were trying to catch a cab from the airport to uh, go to the hotel. We noticed that the white cab drivers would come by and before we could get in, they'd have a white passenger and gone. Black cab drivers would come up and tell us, you might as well ride with me. They're not gonna carry y'all. <laughs> we got in, in the uh, black cab and listened to his story and what was going on. When we got to the hotel, we noticed three lines. When it was my time, the lady who was behind the counter said to me, where you monkeys from? <laughs> and I said, what'd you say? <laughs> and she said, where you monkeys from? And I was just through with it. I just yeah. walked away. Yeah, it wasn't nothing for me to say it. I wouldn't go get caught up in that kind of bull. So when I stepped out of line, the other guy stepped up and she called him a monkey. And so we decided right there and right then and there, hey, we need to have a meeting because uh, I'm not going to put up with this all week. Within an hour, uh, we had the team together, about 25 of us and uh, different teams. Right. Black and white. Yes. And oh. I was never so proud of my teammates who, who stood up for, for us and made it known that we wasn't going to play. They got, don't treat Abner better than that. 
we're not going to play. Let's play the game somewhere else. Guys start standing up and expressing themselves. And those of us who were black wanted to play in Houston. So we went and checked the airplanes and they wouldn't let us on. Somebody come up with the idea of renting a car and driving to Houston. That's what we did. Being from Dallas, I was comfortable in Houston. Right. The guys decided, well, we'll all get rental cars and drive to Houston and play the game. Well, there's nothing they can say, the coaches can say, when you're saying I'm playing the game in Houston. They were upset with me, <laughs> and they told me about it, you know. <laughs> and I said, fine, and we're still going to play the game in Houston, and we did. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, and it was packed quite an experience because after it was over, obviously we all was talking about it, <laughs> what had happened. How did you feel when you walked into that stadium and you saw it packed and you, you saw all the support there in spite of kind of the uproar you had created in, you know, the week before? It was like a load off of my shoulders. Yeah. Was, and I didn't want to tell nobody the way I felt, but I knew I had to start that day and I was gonna have to have a good day when time to go outside and see all those people, man, you could hear people t raising hell and talking. You knew they was talking about us. That had never happened in Houston before. And, uh, and never had it happened with players from Dallas. So we were very surprised to see that many people there and as enthusiastic as they were. And the question was, was the AFL going to scold them, go ahead and play the game without them, or were they going to support their players? And to the AFL's credit, they stepped up and supported their players and moved the game to Houston. Was there ever a moment the, pr the prior week in New Orleans or during the week as you were planning that you, that you were unsure about your decision to boycott? It was pretty simple. If you felt this way about me, then I was going to feel a certain way about you. And right. that experience in New, New Orleans uh, had wrecked me and didn't even have the decency to refer to me as a man. I had no problem moving on with that. I, it wasn't new. I just <laughs> had put her in that bag and moved on. I was, you know. Right. Instead of letting everybody that don't like you get you sent to jail, a lot of times you can just move on, and that's what we had learned. After that happened in New Orleans, New Orleans was granted a, an NFL franchise, the Saints. Did, um, did you have feelings about that? Uh, did you think that, like, in two years that they had changed radically enough to, to deserve a professional sports franchise like that? But I still have feelings about the stuff that goes on, and I wouldn't live in it. I have no desire to live there. I played in Denver, New York, different cities. And some of them I enjoyed and some of them I wouldn't play in again. That great comment you make in the documentary, Full Color Football. But I'm more concerned with being a good dad. And my son's not hearing 20 and 30 years later how I chickened out and didn't have no backbone. It was time for some men to stand up and be counted. Looking back on that now, you know, 55 years later, does it 
light you up with pride to know that you you had that kind of foresight back then? It's an interesting question you asked. Soon as you start saying that, it, it involves my family. My mom was from Hillsboro and my dad was from Jewett. They got married and moved to Denton, Texas, and I was their last son. What I had been taught all my life, dignity, pride, character, that's all I was doing was following what I had been taught by my family. The Hanges, it was a bunch of us, they was about dignity. That was what I was seeing from them. Yeah, and that's what they was telling me to do for my kids. It wasn't about me. It, it was about those coming after me. So that's what made standing up uh, so unusual is that you wasn't doing it for yourself. Was there any issue with players when you came to Denver? How is that initiation coming in the wake of a boycott? Well, Denver was tremendous to me, a great experience. My family were notorious for taking the kids and sending them out of the South right. to California and Denver. And so my brother was already at the University of Denver and my uncles and aunties relocated to Vallejo outside of San Francisco. The guy I'm talking about, you might have heard of, his name was Sly and the Family Stone. So <laughs> that was the decision I had to make, California or Denver. And I chose Denver. And when I got there, it, it, my cousins and aunts and aunts, it was just great. Going to church was great. It was just perfect. So I went there and, uh, for two years before I came back to Dallas and, and went on back to school. Have you paid attention to a lot of the activism in the NFL over the last few years, beginning with Colin Kaepernick? I watch all of that. Very interested in it. The show is not over. Right. There's no reason to to not address what's going on and listen to these youngsters because they've been listening to us and we'd like to see what they've gotten and, and, and which direction they're going. And, and these kids are just amazing uh, the way they picked up what has happened to us and assimilated into it. And you got strong relationships now that are developed that we were just developing in the 55 and 56. Now we know how to do it. <laughs> Is it disheartening to see that even, you know, we're, we're 50 years later from you, when you guys were first taking a stand and pointing out the prejudice, and it's still here? That's true, but there are reasons for that, obviously. And some of the reason is it was not addressed. It was accidentally but not by design. Seems like to me, it's design. See, you might have an outlet uh, 20 or 30 years ago, but it was not planned. Things led to something else and somebody stood up. But it's obvious that these guys are planning this. They know what they're doing. We, we had no idea how people were gonna react to the things we did and the way we said it because it hadn't happened before. It hadn't been looked at, it was new. So you had to have some backbone 
to step up back then because uh, for the move that everything was, you first uh, had to get in. So you got to remember, but we're not in nothing if you're like a young boy coming up like me. You're not on a, a team. You're on a team, but it's all black. And you don't, I don't know that I'm going to uh, be the first black to play running back at North Texas and in the South. And the coaches and the president and the students who would come up to me and tell me to fight on, don't give up. And that kind of encouraged me every day. Yeah, I'd get some people who try to discourage me, but I wouldn't let them run it. <laughs> and that's what I was taught at home. Your stand in 1965 certainly helped push the envelope forward a little bit. Feel a little bit of pride when you look at the NFL now and kind of know that you guys back in 1965 really started a lot of this? Well, they, they were shocked because at that time, when you attacked the black, you just attacked the black. Nothing really wasn't said or done. That's why everything was segregated. That's why things were the way they were, is because there hadn't been no problem with it. We started getting more information and start getting a better understanding of what we, the positions and the situations that we were being played in and what was really happening to us. It was interesting being in high school at the time because we talked to each other and we didn't know what was going on. We was enjoying the all black school. We had good teams, but come time to go to college and my family's the one sent me down and told me about uh, North Texas being segregated and no black players up there. My dad thought most people knew them and would accept me in the college. And so that made sense to me. What do you think might have happened in the NFL if you hadn't taken a stand? You think the future, the, the progress of the NFL would have been different? I'm sure it would have, but uh, the time that you're talking about, uh, I remember going up to my room and getting on the phone and calling the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who was in the Canadian League, who had contacted me about playing for them. And uh, I didn't want to go to Canada. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I'll, build, I, maybe I'll go up there and see what, what the town is about anyway. <laughs> That's what I was looking at is go, moving on. Right. Was there anyone who was like, I'm, I don't want to do this because I know I'm going to lose my job in the NFL? Or was it pretty much solidarity toward, we need to make a stand? Without doubt at all. Every move you're making as a football team, when you all are together, you, you have to believe in that. And we thought we were all good enough to overcome this. I thought I was good enough running back that whatever I was going to have to go through uh, my freshman year, that I could do that. I was pretty good. Uh, I could catch. I was fast. <laughs> and I was tough. 
and that'll get you a long ways in football. <laughs> That's why I was certain that this was something I wanted to try because I thought I could do it. That, that was important. Let me ask you about Cookie Gilchrist because uh, he was also there at the All-Star Game. And then when uh, you, you came to Denver, he also came from Buffalo. Right. Was it weird having him on the same team a after you guys both went through that experience? I was like two brothers. He was the fullback and I was the running back. Just a rugged guy, tough guy. And he was also a street fighter and uh, constantly getting into arguments with folks on the streets and so forth. But that wasn't by style. But in the same backfield, you, you had your hands full with Cookie Gil Gilcrest and Abner Haynes because <laughs> you didn't know if you were going to get rough and tough or speed. You were in Denver under uh, Max Speedy's uh, stewardship uh, in the history of the Broncos. Um, not much is really talked about with Max Speedy. Do you have a, a Max Speedy story? The story I have about Max Speedy, uh, I hope is enlightening for you because he's the guy that brought in Cookie Gilchrist and Abner Hain. And that, that spoke volumes right there. <laughs> yeah, for you to bring in these two kind of guys, it had people in Denver talking and uh, really believing that there's no telling what they could see. Cookie had a, the excellent reputation from Buffalo, New York of a fighter. I sense that there was some enthusiasm with the Broncos because we were brought up at the same time. The proverbial one-two punch, right? That we always yes. talk about with running backs? <laughs> Absolutely. Cookie was, you know, he's the kind of guy you're going to have a hard time getting him down. <laughs> and I'm going to run around you. You know, I'm going to outrun you. I'm going to beat you to the corner. So that'll worry our defense that we knew that we were on their mind. And we had a nice defense too. My last year was with uh, New York Jets. So New York was a natural for me. And uh, I also played in Miami. And, and that was an unusual experience. It just made sense for a poor boy like me from Dallas to get all these kind of different exposures to learning so that when I did retire, uh, I had something that I could fall back on. And it was it worked out well because I, I got a chance to play with four or five teams. So if you can play, you know, then you'll get respect. I have a question for King. Um, <laughs> King, what, what, is your, what is your favorite story about your dad? That, that 1965 All-Star boycott is certainly up there. I would say it's a, it's a culmination of a lot of the stories and the character that he showed in college and in the pros. One thing I always noticed, and I keep this with me, is... It's not the story totally of the evil Neanderthal white people. <laughs> At the same time, there were always the forward thinkers. Uh, North Texas, the, the whole state, the whole South was segregated, but there were forward thinkers 
further along than the rest who uh, instituted and gave this black guy a chance. And I think that's still true today. You know, a lot of people that would rather keep it like it's always been and keep our foot on these people's necks. But you have others that think more in a forward sense. And I saw that like at that boycott, there was Jerry Mays, Jack Kemp. Ron Mix, yeah. Yeah, there were white guys that were right there with them. Okay, but if my dad doesn't stand up and just goes along with it and keep your mouth shut and take your money, and don't say nothing about how we do the rest of these blacks, then a lot of people wouldn't have got educated. Thousands and thousands have been educated at North Texas since he went through all of this. Right. So, so these are some of my favorite stories. Now, to give you a specific one, they were, they were going to an all-star game in San Diego. And I believe it was Cheryl Hedrick, was a linebacker and and they stopped in Arizona to eat. They drove and they stopped and of course the, the place didn't want to serve a black and Cheryl Hedrick went crazy on <laughs> and insured and told them they were going to serve after. See because we'll lose hope and you need hope. Right. This world was, will take your hope but what I've seen is all along that there are the white people that are further ahead in their thinking, that they don't have the need to be the slave master, so to speak, still. Because I met a lot of these people. Yeah. And the people that I saw not go along with the status quo, but to do what was right. You know, how are we going to have two-a-day practices and y'all won't even let the man eat? <laughs> right? <laughs> you got to go back across town to the black part of town just to eat. So they would, there were white guys that would go in the dorm and get food and give it to them. And so I saw, I see that all along the way. So it gives me hope and Though even though even in today's world, there's lots of people, just like y'all mentioned the Black Lives Matter, you know, even though they've explained 10,000 times, they're not protesting the flag, they're not protesting the military, anything like that. They're protesting us being slaughtered and murdered by the bushel unarmed. But there are a bunch of Americans that keep wanting to make it like they're protesting against the flag because that sounds better and it plays better. I like, I like those stories because number one, it shows my dad's character. That helped me a lot in my own struggles. Uh, number two, it shows me that there's still hope for the world. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a question for Mr. Haynes. There's a story about you choosing uh, the AFL over uh, the NFL because of the condition of the men that showed up to uh, recruit you to the NFL. It was a hard choice, but there was a guy named Lamar Hunt. And I remember coming home one evening from practice and saw this Cadillac in my driveway. And when I got to the porch, I found out it was Lamar Hunt. 
the Pittsburgh Steelers had drafted me in the NFL. But Mr. Hunt was sitting at my table with my parents and my family when I got home. And that was how they made the trade was to sit down with the parents, the family, to, to talk to the players. And that really impressed me. This rich guy from Dallas had, had knew where I lived and came out to meet my family. Pittsburgh didn't do that. As a matter of fact, they came and invited me to the hotel, but uh, I wasn't impressed. But I was really impressed with uh, Lamar Hunt coming over to the house uh, to sit down with my family. Just kind of speaks to the kind of man that founded the, the American Football League. You know? Well, it was deep. It was, it was really deep because, uh, you know, my daddy was a bishop of the Church of God in Christ, but, you know, nobody didn't really know who he was in sports until, uh, you know, the papers got involved and started interviewing him. But I thought that was real impressive to uh, go to the player's house and meet his family. That, that wasn't taking place every night. You were playing pros. Did your sisters ever ever come to you and say, oh, man, I'm better than you. I tackled you when you were 15. I should be in the pros. <laughs> God, it's funny, funny you would mention Maxine Kyle. She has taught uh, school for 52 years. Uh, she's 84 now. And... Uh, she was tough as nails. I used to have to block her. She was tough as nails, and when she's here, this she's gonna be all over me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Maxine she's a woman after my own heart. I love, I love playing football with my boys, and I, I always have to remind myself not to tackle too hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish she would have tackled you. But see, our oldest brothers and sisters, they wouldn't let her let up. Maxine and I were the two youngest, and they had us going after it all the time. Yeah. And so the street that I stayed on was all family. I guarantee you, 713 Bailey was a hell of a street. I bet it was. Sounds like it was probably a hell of a football game going on every day, too. <laughs> well, the girls had to be tough back then, and and that's where I first heard Slide Stone sing. <laughs> All right. So he's gonna be glad I mentioned Rose. Don't forget the Rose Stone and Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So King, let's ask you for a minute. I know you have started a recovery program. Tell us a little bit about what you do. It started here in Texas, uh, I started and I had a ministry where I would help people in Dallas mm -hmm. from the same environment that I came out of. Right. Uh, and my dad is one of the ones that helped me overcome this. Uh, what I've done is I'm the addiction recovery coach and, and I've developed an online program to reach more people than what I can just see in Dallas. Right. And so it's going really well. Uh, 
uh, brothers and friends of mine were some of the first clients and you can find the online course at addictionrecoverycoach.org. Addictionrecoverycoach.org. Yes. I want to thank my dad now because <laughs> the kind of guy he was, I was a lot to handle, you know, when I was younger and involved in drugs and alcohol, but he was one of the ones that weren't afraid of me. And I had a lot of people wash their hands of me and I don't know what would have happened, but a lot of days when I needed a hand, uh, he wasn't afraid and gave me a hand and I'm still alive out here now and can help other people find their own way. That's fantastic. I, I can tell talking to both of you, family is such a big part of who you are. And so Mr. Haynes, it's clearly, you haven't been afraid of anybody. You've been, you've, and you haven't been afraid to, to make family and, and love and relationships a really big part of who you are and what you stand for. And obviously it made an impact on your son and, and now you, you both in a way are carrying that forward and helping others, which is fantastic. Well, I consider what you guys are doing in a similar way that when I got into the integration process, going to all white school and playing pro football and college ball y'all have the same kind of basics there's a lot going on but you got your nose in it <laughs> and you know you're not dodging and you're not running and so it's always a pleasure to talk to you young guys and listen to your questions it has been an extreme pleasure of both of ours to talk with you it's really a highlight i mean Number one, you played for our favorite team, the Broncos. But, but more importantly, you did something that is so important in our society. You were a pioneer. And no, one, no one had done it before you. So I, there is no roadmap. And, and, and it, it, that is so admirable that in defense of your own values, you stood up for what was right. And, um, and now we can look back on it years later in, in the current climate. And, and it's just remarkable that that you were one of the first. And, and we are so grateful that you gave us the opportunity to speak with you and your son. I appreciate that. When you hang up, pat yourself on the back. <laughs> Let's, we'll do a little virtual high five to everybody right now. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah.